It is important for us to talk about the justice of the Lamb of God and not to avoid uh, this very important topic. You know, I like detective shows. I would say my wife likes them more. She kind of binges detective shows where in 42 minutes, including commercials, you're done. You know, everything gets resolved and all the broken things, all the sad things get resolved. Um, I, I prefer something a little more complicated than that probably, but in real life, in the real world, I want there to be resolution. I want there to be justice. I don't want evil to win. I think we all agree. Uh, But in order for that to happen, what we're introduced to, one concept we're introduced to in Revelation is this concept of what you could call redemptive violence. Redemptive violence. It's It's a tension that is introduced in Revelation that we really need to understand and talk about this morning. Is it necessary for God to be violent against evil? Is it necessary as he brings his redemption in the world, is it necessary for him to judge evil in a way that is violent? Some question this. Some wonder whether or not this has to be the case. But we need to come to terms with it. You know, the Bible does not um, introduce the question to us, Is God too severe and too violent to judge evil? That is not the question of of Revelation. That is a modern question that we have asked of God. The, The question that Revelation seeks to answer is something quite different. It's how long, O Lord, can you wait to avenge the blood of your saints who have been persecuted and martyred for your holy name? So it's a it's a flip. It's a flip for us in our minds uh, to, to think about it in these terms. But we think about the, the injustice in the world and what needs to be done about it. One man who's written a, a decent amount about this and quite profoundly is Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian. He has a famous work called Inclu- Exclusion and Embrace. I read it in seminary. Wolf, as Croatian, he lived through the wars of the Balkans where Serbian fighters called Setniks, I'm sure I'm not saying that right, wreaked havoc on the Croatians as what is now called a genocide. In exclusion and embrace, Wolf tries to make sense of whether or not it's right for a Christian to hope for justice against these people who have showed such destruction in his country. Wolf says this, For months now, the Setniks have been sowing desolation in my native country of Croatia, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. And he goes on, he says this, he says, The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. But this will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West. Listen up here. He says, It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge those who do evil. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of innocent people, thoughts of a God who is worthy of worship but does not judge evil invariably dies. He goes on and talks about how he teaches seminary classes to students who lived through this and the disingenuineness 
that we give to God to, to not talk about the redemptive violence of God, that one day God will make an end to all of the violence in the world. This is a very important question, though. Who is the agent of justice? Who is the only one who is qualified to bring justice? It's God alone. Only God can do this. It is not my responsibility. It is not your responsibility. We may have a micro responsibility in the midst of all that to, to do good and to participate in the justice system, but what the Bible is talking about here is God's responsibility. It's reserved for God alone. God brings justice in the world, and we are called to nonviolence in response to, to persecution for our faith. Tim Chester, who wrote a commentary on Revelation, has been very helpful to me. He says this, about nonviolence. He says, the twin themes of divine violence and human nonviolence are not in conflict. The message of Revelation is that one enables the other. We can refrain from revenge precisely because we trust in a God to ensure that victory will be done. We can only bless those who persecute us. We can only overcome evil with good because we believe that one day God will overcome evil with good. It is totally nonsensical to respond with nonviolence to being persecuted for your faith if you don't believe that God is going to take care of things in the end. Nonviolence and that response that we're called to is predicated on God being just. So we all want justice, but we're called to wait on the Lord for the day of justice. That day of justice is coming. We're talking today about how God is going to close the gap between his promise for justice and the reality of justice and what it looks like for us to wait in the meantime. So we see three progressions in this passage. First of all, we're going to see a celebration of the Lord's justice in chapter 15. And then we're going to see God closing the gap between promise and reality in chapter 16. And then finally, we're going to look at the vast difference it makes in your life right now and in the end to put your hope in Jesus Christ as the one who takes on God's wrath for you. All right, let's go into it. So celebrating the Lamb's justice. We see a celebration of the Lamb's justice in 1 through 8. We're just going to walk through that text. So first of all, what we find here that's being celebrated is final or finished justice in verse 1. John says what he sees is great and amazing, and what is being accomplished here in chapter 16 is final this is the final judgment. We also see that the peace of God or the shalom of God flows from God's justice in verse 2. We see the sea of glass. The sea in the Bible and in reality is one of the most untamable, uncontrollable uh, entities in the world. And so for God to be sitting before a sea of glass, it shows his perfect power over all things, over all creation. I see here also John reflecting back when he was on the boat with Jesus and the seas were going crazy and he saw Jesus by saying, peace be still, turn the sea into glass. So he knows that, that Jesus does sit enthroned over the seas. But this sea of glass is also mingled with fire. The way that shalom comes, the way that the peace of God comes, is going to be through judgment. It's going to be through a fiery judgment of evil. The third thing we see here in verses 3 and 4 is that fear inspires the worship of God for his justice. Or you could, another word for fear could be awe. 
these saints, and, and you can picture yourself there if you've believed in Jesus Christ. You should picture yourself there. You can picture the saints of, from around the world, Nigeria, China, saints of old. We're all gathered there, and we are, we are standing in awe of God as he pours out his justice on the world. The song in verse 3 and 4 is inspired by many Old Testament descriptions of God's character. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a compilation of greatest hits of some Old Testament uh, descriptions of God. And I remember l- learning this song growing up. I don't know if you ever knew this song growing up. I was in a Pentecostal church, but I haven't heard it sung since then. But it talks about, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O Lord. You are the King of saints. Who shall not fear you? Who shall not glorify your name, O Lord? Only you are holy, and all creation will come and worship before you. This is the song of the redeemed as they stand in awe of God and his justice. Another theme we see here is that the nations are summoned together. You see this picture of God's justice being poured out, but God has also ingathered people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to worship him. And the final aspect we see here uh, and that I'll highlight in chapter 15 is the justice that flows out from the heart of God. It flows out from his very heart. This is not tangential to God. This is not less important than his love. The justice of God against evil flows from the very center of his being. So the sanctuary of the tent of witness that we read about there in verse 5, this is a picture of the holy of holies, the idea being that the justice of God flows out directly from the holy of holies. There's unmistakably from God. The smoke from the glory and power of God that we see here, there's images of this in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. There's also images where in Ezekiel 43 that the glory of the Lord fills the temple. What this means is that God's Maximum presence is being brought to bear in this moment as he brings justice and brings his wrath against evil in the world. That final verse I find to be uh, really interesting where it says that, that only angels and God are allowed into this place. So for, for a moment here, we're worshiping with God, but we're separated from this moment. This is God's moment. This is heaven's moment. It also speaks to the fact that we are not the bringers of justice in the world. That God is the one who unilaterally, on his own, because he is righteous, brings justice. And our role is to worship him and to wait on him. And so the first uh, aspect we see in this passage is that the saints worship God for his justice. And I think we need to grow in that. I think we need to grow, I need to grow in that area of my life. As we see the injustice that's happening all over the world, and we long for the day when his righteous acts will be revealed, we need to be filled with more worship over the justice of God, knowing that one day God will come and vindicate all things. He'll come and make all things new. And so we wait for that day. The second aspect of this text is closing the gap between the promise and the reality. This is where we get into the seven bowls. The seven bowls. You know, in 2024, we're not yet in Revelation 16. Uh, We're still living in this gap between the promise and the reality. And living in that gap is hard. 
It's hard to wait on the Lord, especially if you're suffering, especially if you're being persecuted, especially if you're suffering injustice. Uh, It's hard to wait on the Lord. I do not wait well. Uh, It's not one of my greatest qualities. I am a fast-paced person. I want to figure things out. I had to wait on something important about a month ago that I was totally out of control over, and it about drove me crazy. about drove Olivia crazy, too. Um, I'm not a good waiter. Um, And I've heard uh, folks describe this recently as what has been called a liminal space. The idea of a liminal space is this. It's as if you are, let's say you're at a a, a train station and you need to change trains and you need to go from this train to that train, but in order to get to the new train, you need to walk under a tunnel to get to the new train. And you think that tunnel is about five minutes long. But actually, once you get into the tunnel, that tunnel's not five minutes long. It's days long, weeks long, months long. You thought something that would be quite easy, quite an easy transition for you, is not easy. It's going on for a long, long time. And this liminal space, it could be called, is a space where there's a lot of spiritual opportunity for us. There's also a place for a lot of negative uh, spiritual direction as well. Like Abraham, we're called in that liminal space between the faith and the promise to put our hope in the Lord, to continue to hope in him, no matter how long that gap exists. But it's hard. It's hard to continue to hope and to wait on the Lord. But these liminal spaces in our lives are important. They're important for us to learn how to wait. And I would say for our brothers and sisters around the world throughout the centuries, that wait has been far longer than anyone ever anticipated. Surely John, writing here in like AD 90, I don't think he expected that the the end wouldn't have come yet. It's been a long time. For our brothers and sisters in China and around the world, that are suffering for their faith. It's been a long time and they're waiting. They're crying out for the Lord to return. But we need to know that our time in the train tunnel will not last forever because Jesus is coming again. Throughout Revelation, there is a movement forward in the closing of the gap. Um, I want to remind you that we've had the seven seals. That was in Revelation 6 and 7. Those plagues affected a quarter of the earth. Okay, then we were in the seven trumpets in Revelation 8 and 9. Those affected about a third of the earth. Then we get to the seven bowls, the final of the sevens series here, Revelation 16. This affects all of the earth. So this is getting at the reality that God's judgment, though in Revelation 16, it is going to come finally and fully. It is progressively being brought about in the world in God's own ways and timing. And so the gap is actually closing. It's not like the promise is here and all of a sudden, boom, Revelation 16, it's over. There's a closing as God is bringing things in under his rule and reign. That's a bit of a mystery to us, but this is how God's justice works. Before we take a quick look at each of the seven bowls, I want to remind you, since we haven't been in Revelation in a little while, of who or what the beast is. Okay, the beast comes back in this passage. So what is the beast? The beast is, you could say, is the manifestation of Satan's work in the world through various leaders, nation states, ideologies, cultural movements, economic or technological promises that are made. These these ways of living apart from God that are kind of codified in the way things work in the world. They are are God-alternate paths for us to take that we put our hope in 
what is really, what's behind this is Satan's work, but it's manifest through these beast-like entities. Uh, the mark of the beast is figurative, okay? This is not like a tattoo or something like that. I don't believe that's the best way to interpret it. The mark of the beast is basically, whenever something's put on your forehead in the Bible, it means that it characterizes you. It, this is how you identify. Uh, you are identified as one who follows in this particular way. Whether it's after yourself or after something in the world, that would be uh, identifying with the beast, if that is how you identify. For a Christian, they would not have the mark of the beast. We may struggle, we, may, we do struggle, we, we have idols, we, but when we have those idols in our lives, we see those idols, and by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, he enables us to repent. So the mark of the beast is in the statement of identity and where someone is actually locating themselves. Um, so we're going to walk through each of these bowls, it's a lot. I'm not, I'm not actually going to go into great detail on, on each of them. I think it would overwhelm everyone. <laughs> but I am going to include enough about each one. If you want to study this more in depth, you're going to have to probably go back and really get into it. But I'm going to give you the highlights of each bowl and show how it makes progress toward closing that gap of God's justice. So the first bowl in 16.2, what we find is those who bear the mark of the beast will be cursed with painful physical marks on their bodies, okay? So by following the beast, what you get is exactly the opposite of what the beast promised. You follow the beast because the beast, or something in the world, whatever identifies with that, because you believe it will offer you some kind of protection when in the end, that does not happen for you. You receive the opposite. You receive exactly retributively from God what you hope to receive from the beast. Bowl 2 and verse 3, uh, Satan is pictured in, in 17.1 as one who sits on the waters. You see this throughout Revelation, different points where Satan is kind of a parody of the lamb. The, the true lamb of God sits on the waters like a sea of glass. Satan styles himself like this. But those who trust in the beast to bring peace will get death instead. Then bowl number three, uh, verses four through seven, it says this, those who have shed the blood of the saints and prophets will in the end drink the judgment of death, which is what God says they deserve. So those who shed the blood of God's people will be punished exactly in the same manner that they have treated the church. They will drink death themselves. Although we pray, and this is a constant prayer of the persecuted church, is that they would love their enemies in such a way that they will not have to face this kind of judgment. That they would not be filled with hatred toward their enemies, but they would pray for them. They would love to see as many people come to know Christ instead of receiving this kind of fate. Uh, bowl number four, verses eight through nine. Again, those who run to protection from the beast will receive no protection in the end. But this is really interesting what ends up happening towards the end of these bowls, is that the people, as they're judged more and more, they get more and more hardened if you notice that, they still do not repent. Bowl number five, those who, this is verses 10 and 11, those who seek light in the beast will be plunged into darkness and they will loathe their life, they will hate their life, but they will curse God anyway. Bowl number six, those who hate God will have a way open to them by God to assemble against him. I'm gonna spend a little more time on this one. So God, it says that he dries out the river Euphrates 
in ancient times, almost always uh, people came from the east and they, they, when they were going to undo the, the, Jew, the Jewish kingdom or the Roman kingdom, all these other kingdoms, people are coming in from the east. And so the idea here is that God, and, and there's parts of Revelation where God had set a barrier on the Euphrates River somehow, spiritually, but now he's released that and he's now allowing kingdoms to assemble against him. And, and these uh, beast-like kingdoms, people who hate God and love whatever they're doing, are just absolutely ecstatic at this opportunity. They are very excited. This is going to be their moment where they're going to conspire against God and they're going to, they're going to win. Um, and so this is what's going on in the sixth bowl. What comes out here is an important term in Revelation, the Battle of Armageddon. I'm sure you've heard of that before. So the Valley of Megiddo is an actual valley uh, in you know, ancient Palestine. And so there's some speculation about is it, are we talking about that particular valley where all of these kings will be assembled and they'll make war against God? It's possible. There's also a lot of scholarship where some believe that it could be on a mountain instead of in a valley. I, I don't really know. Uh, but I think the point is that there have been some partial fulfillments of this already. So in the sense that there have already been people who have assembled and come and made war on God's people. But I think the best way to interpret this is that in the end, in the very end, there will be a battle, I believe, in, that, in a physical location in that area of the world where the kings of the world will assemble against God's people or against God, and God will, God will win. That's a mystery to me how that will happen. But God, in the end, will uh, enable some excitement against him uh, only to show with full refusal that he is the true king, that he is the lamb, and he will crush all human powers who oppose him. Then the seventh bowl uh, is in verses 17 through 21. And this has to do with uh, Babylon or it could be like Rome in John's day where, and we're going to see this even more in the sermon next week, that there are certain cities in the world, uh, Rome in this day, Babylon is kind of the, the, the prototype, uh, where all of the beast-like qualities and, and all of the, the elements that come together, economics and politics and money and sex, it all comes together in cities. And so God here in the seventh bowl is judging uh, Rome and Babylon. And there's a, a severe, a severe uh, expression of God's wrath through earthquake and hail. So all who oppose God will continue to curse God, even in the seventh bowl. And so God, in this, in this chapter, he closes the gap between promise and reality. He closes this gap and he, he shows us that in the end, this will be final, that he will bring peace, he will bring shalom, that his justice will be revealed. And as we check that out and as we think about it, as we draw to a close, there's a major question that we need to take up. Um, what difference does it make for you right now and in the future to put your hope in the Lamb of God, to be the one who takes on God's sin-bearing, wrath-bearing curse for you. What difference does it make for you? What kind of outcome does it change for you to trust in Jesus Christ? This is the final point. It's the difference that trusting the slain lamb makes. The difference that trusting the slain, slain lamb makes. And first of all, we're going to look at those who trust in God. Let's look at the outcomes of those who trust in God. And we see this in certain spaces in this text. First of all, there's the outcome of repentance. 
that you are someone that when you see the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, and, and, you, and that is cast upon you and the Holy Spirit works in you, that you're someone who says, yes, God, you're right about me. I'm not worthy. As Joe talked about, we, were, we are without Christ. We are enemies of God. We, we justly deserve his displeasure. And yet when God points that out to you, sometimes it might take us a minute, but in, in general, if you're a Christian, you're the kind of person that is responsive to the Holy Spirit. You know that you're not righteous on your own. Your righteousness comes from Christ. And so you're someone who repents. Uh, the second aspect we see in those who trust God is they're, they're people who worship. They're people who worship. We will worship God corporately and personally, corporately and personally as a statement of our love for God and our fidelity to him and as a way to defy the beast. You know, every time we gather together and worship and we, ha- we face all of these worldly pressures, when we worship God together, what one thing we're doing, one area we're engaging in is defiance. We are stating, ever so hard it may be, that we don't want to follow the ways of the world and the beast. We want to follow after the Lord, and so we worship him. The third aspect and third outcome we see in those who trust God is endurance. Endurance. They suffer. They suffer for a long time in this liminal space. And in the gap, though we may struggle, as I do when I wait, we, we wait on the Lord and we endure often through suffering. And the final aspect we see here is eternal life, that in the end we inherit eternal, eternal life and righteousness. And then we'll look at those who trust in the beast, that is anyone or anything besides God, the final outcome of those who trust in the beast. One outcome we see is refusal. Refusal. There is a settled in commitment to not following God. And over time, it just continues on and you get more and more. Second thing I see is a hardening. Like Pharaoh and the plagues of Egypt, there's a hardening that happens. The more, the more you are, are judged and the more you experience the, the consequences of your sin, that doesn't turn you back to God for grace. It entrenches you even further and for those, if you, have, if you have family or friends in your life that are experienced this kind of hardening or refusal, I think it calls for much prayer for us because only God can change hearts that are getting more and more hardened against them because it is a settled-in situation that can, then co- can come about in people. Another outcome that we see in those who trust the beast, I would call, to use Miroslav Volf's language, uh, a suburbanizing of God. A suburbanizing of God. Let me explain that. Um, the idea is this, and postmodern Western thought is that God may be just, but God is also loving, and in the end, his love will triumph over justice so that in the end, everybody somehow wins. Okay? We're not sure how it's going to work, But God's love is just a little bit bigger than his justice, and because of that, or maybe a lot bigger, and because of that, we don't know how it's going to work out, but everybody's going to win in the end. So let's think about that for a minute. That's called universalism. That is not the message of Revelation 15 and 16. You cannot read Revelation 16 genuinely and believe that God is a universalist God. Everybody doesn't win if there's no justice. 
If there's no justice, the martyrs don't win, the saints don't win, those who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus don't win. All these people don't win if everybody wins. Human empires are in some ways built always on injustice. Regimes control, they intimidate, they persecute. This leads to oppression, violence, attempts at revolution. Societies are marked by self-interest and distrust. In the everybody wins version of the world, those people who set up those societies that prey on innocent victims in order to gain wealth and power win. That's who wins if everybody wins. Okay, and this is the tension that we're introduced to here. Do you want to live in a world where injustice, where injustice goes unpunished? Do you want to live in a world where evil in the end gets recognized the same way as the good? Do you want to live in that world where everybody wins? Do you want justice, but you also don't want that justice to correspond to God's righteous standard of justice? You want justice in some kind of way, but for God to be coercive, to actually require you to adhere to his standard of justice, well, that's not okay. So you have some other quasi-standard that you think about for justice, but it's not God's standard because that's not right, somehow you might say, for God to require us to, to correspond to him. How would justice come in the world without it coming from God? Where would it come from? Where would righteousness and holiness and justice come from in the world from what you see right now in America and in the world today? Where is the origin of justice coming from if it's not coming from the heart of God himself? And yet, we also tend to want justice for other people's sins and not for our own sins. We tend to look at other people's sins and say, wow, that's really bad. I really, I think that they need to be, you know, they probably need to be judged for that by God. Um, we look at our own sins and we, we, lower the, we lower the standard and think, ah, that's not that bad. But that's not how God works. I think for all of us, all of our sins, yours and mine, they are not small sins. They are consequential sins. They are sins that are against God's righteous character. We all, Romans 3.23, fall short of the glory of God and are justified only through the grace of the Son. There is no one who is worthy of God. There's no one who's worthy on their own merit except for Jesus Christ who can stand before God in holiness and righteousness. And so when I lived in China, a story to illustrate this gap between God's, God's holiness and his righteousness and our sin, I, when I was a missionary in China back in like 1998 to 2005, we were in a, in a city in China on a on a river, the campus I was serving on was situated on a river. It was a massive gorge between the campus and the other side of the river. It's probably about two or three miles wide, very deep, probably a thousand feet deep. And when I would get to the point where I was trying to explain the holiness of God to a student, I would take them out and we'd sit by the river and we would talk about the gap that exists between where we are now, sitting on the side of the bank and the other side of the gorge. And I would say, let's just imagine, even though the gap between our righteousness and God's righteousness is actually far greater than that, let's imagine that this river actually did represent the gap between you and God. Do you think that there's any amount of physical training or 
drugs you could take or anything else that could enable you to jump from here to the other side of the river. And they would all just like laugh, you know, it was like, it's three miles. I mean, come on, it's a joke, you know, even like Carl Lewis or whoever the best long jumper now is would literally get like 29 feet out and fall in. It would be a joke. And that is exactly what it is. I mean, when we try to reach God and get to the other side and have a relationship with God in our own merit, it is not happening. We do not have that ability. Our sins before God limit that completely. But then I would direct their attention down to about a mile down the road. uh, There was a, a bridge one of the only bridges in the area that crossed this gorge. And I would explain the gospel to them and say, the only way we can get to the other side of this river is by taking the bridge, right? And then Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is the one who provides the opportunity for us to know God. But here's the thing, bringing it back to God's justice. How was the bridge built? How was the gap closed for us? Well, there's only two alternatives here according to Revelation 16. Either Revelation 16 is your end, and this is where justice is poured out on you if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ took on the cross, took on the full justice and wrath of God for you, which means that in his own way, all that we see in Revelation 16 was poured out on Jesus that is the, the merit of his death, that God did not hold back in punishing Jesus on the cross, that Jesus took on all of God's wrath against sin for all who trust in him. We can be saved. We can, we can go free. We don't have to experience that. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, came in order for us to have that opportunity to trust in him and to hide ourselves in the shadow of his wings. If we refuse to trust in him and that, that gracious offering, that incredible offering that Christ offered up for us where he took on the wrath of God in our place, then yes, there is an alternative and it's Revelation 16. And that's what we experience. You know, there was a farmer who uh, one day he was going to sleep and he noticed as he was going to sleep a gleaming light from his backyard in the barn area and by the time he got out there, he recognized that the barn was on fire. And he, it was way too late, and he was really sad because he had a, uh, he had a lot of chickens, and there was a, a mother hen, and he knew in particular about some baby chicks that had just been born, but there was nothing he could do. There's no way the fire department could get there. And so he decided to wait till the next morning. And so the next morning, as things had cooled down a little bit, he was going through the rubble that was left in the embers, And he noticed there was a charred mother hen that was dead in the barn. And yet he heard a noise from underneath the mother hen. And there were two baby chicks that were alive under the mother hen that had been shielded from the fire by the the sacrifice of the mother. I think this is a great illustration for us in that when you hide yourself in Jesus Christ, he bears all of the fiery wrath of God against sin. All of the justice that you and I deserve for our sin, it was all laid on him. And so we can be like these babies, alive and well because of what Christ has done for us. But the whole difference, the complete 100% difference, is whether or not you are hiding under the shelter of, of the wings of God. The wings of the gospel, the wings of, of God. He, he sent his son for us to live a perfect life and die on the cross so that we could have eternal life. 
And if for those of us who know Jesus personally, it is well with our souls. You can be certain that on the final day that you will find yourself in Revelation 15 and not in Revelation 16. You will not face the justice of God because Jesus Christ has already taken on that justice for you. You can live with expectation of the end, with hope and worship. But if you have not put your hope in Jesus Christ, if you've never put your hope in Christ, and you are still hoping that everybody wins or that there's some other standard of justice or that you're not that bad or some other version, then in the end, if you do not change between now and then, then Revelation 16 will be what you experience. And I do not want anyone in this room or anyone watching this live stream for that to be what you experience in the end. It is unnecessary because Jesus Christ has already come and paid the price for us so that we can have new life in the Lord. So I pray that you would not rationalize or suburbanize God. It is a, a disease of our modern mentality that God somehow responds to our demands instead of us responding to his. The fact is that he is God and we are not. And we are called to believe in him. God's wrath against evil is real. Going back to that detective show at the beginning, we all want a day where evil ends, where injustice is undone, and where righteousness flows around the world. We all want that day. It only comes through the Lamb. It only comes through Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to experience that, that freedom and forgiveness, and it's by trusting in him. I pray that you would. If you've, if you've been a Christian, you are a Christian, there's an opportunity for you to to relocate your hope and your trust in the Lamb of God and what Christ has done for us. If you're not a Christian, this is an opportunity for you to become a Christian and to put your hope in the living God who has saved you by his grace. Let me pray. Father, we... Sometimes we bring you down to our level and we, um, we rationalize and suburbanize you and we, we fit you into our little minds. Um, but in moments like this, when we see you and your, your righteousness and your character and your holiness, Lord, you are, we find that you're very different than us. You're, you're other. You are, you are perfect and holy and just and righteous in all your ways. Lord, we long for a day when we can experience the world different than it is right now. But we recognize we're part of that world. We're part of that problem. Every single one of us contributes to injustice. But yet, Lord, we're so grateful that you have found a way, that you have made a way through Jesus Christ for us to know you personally and to make all the sad things come untrue. So, Father, we pray for your work in your church that we would be resilient and faithful, that we would stand in contrast to the world around us, that we would worship in defiance, that we'd be humble, that we would be faithful. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution. Would you bless them as they suffer? And we pray for anyone in our lives who doesn't know you. Father, would this not be what they experience in the end? Instead, would you be gracious to them and send your spirit and bring conviction that there might be uh, repentance and healing? We ask for this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.